Hello, family, and welcome. We're Bob and Penny Lord, and we have a very special super saint to share with you today, St. Charles Barmeo, Bishop, Cardinal, and Saint of the Counter-Reformation. God is so good. He made a promise which he has always kept. He has been a faithful God to a very unfaithful people. We are our own worst enemies, but God always bails us out. We're talking in this instance about the great heretical movement spawned by Martin Luther in the early 16th century, a pure flame from hell which grew and grew until it exploded into epidemic proportions. Luther was a victim of his own ego. He was used and abused as a pawn by the powers that ruled Germany during that period. By the time Martin Luther was dying, he had lost all power. The Reformation had gotten completely out of his control. Luther had to prepare himself to meet God the Father and explain how and why he left the people of God at the mercy of maniacs and wholesale murderers such as John Calvin in Switzerland, Henry VIII, and in years to come, Oliver Cromwell in England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland. Luther made a statement before he died, I wanted to get rid of one pope, I created a hundred popes. Luther's massive and potentially devastating attack on the church of the 16th century put the people of God into a tailspin. He was allowed to spew outrageous heresies, encouraged and supported by the greedy government of the various principalities of Germany who wanted nothing more than to take away the papal lands and not have to pay any royalties to the Pope. They used this poor man as a puppet and the world has never healed from the wounds inflicted upon the church. By the end of the 16th century, each little principality in Germany had their own religion custom tailored to the individual needs and idiosyncrasies of their rulers. None of what was given them in the form of doctrine had anything to do with the Catholic Church, but they were forced to accept it. Many Germans, as well as Swiss, Scandinavian and countless other nationalities were never aware that they were no longer Catholic until it was too late. We have often said that in times of crisis, God sends us miracles of the Eucharist, apparitions of Our Lady, angelic intercessions, and saints and other powerful men and women in our church. This account is about one of those powerful men, a true hero in our church, Charles Cardinal Borromeo, defender of the faith of the 16th century. He was one of God's soldiers along with Ignatius Loyola, founder of the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, Philip Neri, and Pope St. Pius V, who did battle against Luther, Calvin, and all the betrayers of the church and became heroes of the Counter-Reformation. St. Charles Borromeo is one of the four saints who are attributed with fighting the most for the Counter-Reformation against Luther and Calvin. It might be God's sense of humor, but Calvinism began right across the Alps Mountains in Switzerland from where St. Charles was born. Calvinism became a devastating effect on the church and on the people of Switzerland. It was the most brutal form of, a, of tyranny that we've ever heard about in the history of the church and yet the Lord right near there brought a young man into the world who would be a powerful member of our church. Many miracles took place through the intercession of Charles Borromeo, and none of us know much about them. We must tell you about Charles Borromeo. The CCD program that you attend today was instituted by Charles Borromeo. 
the seminaries were also instituted by Charles Borromeo. So much of the wealth of the church. In the time of St. Charles, the bishop of a diocese was headquartered in Rome, near the Pope. It was Charles Borromeo who instituted the practice of a bishop living in his own diocese. Our saint was born in northern Italy in the little town of Arona, right on the beautiful Lago Maggiore. He came from a very well-to-do family and was to come into the world just at the time when things were getting very difficult with Martin Luther. St. Charles' home was constantly filled with bishops and cardinals and priests. His family was a very religious family, and although he came from a well-to-do family and his family was always part of the group in the church, he never considered himself above anybody. If anything, he wanted to give what he had away so that he could be more like the people he served. At 12 years old, Charles received the clerical tonsure and was given a Benedictine abbey in Arona by his uncle, Julius Caesar Borromeo. Charles looked upon this gift as more of a responsibility than a means of adding to his personal wealth. As young as he was, he made a point of using the income from the property solely for the maintenance of the abbey, his religious education, and his care of the poor and the homeless. For a while, he was the custodian or executor of the estate. He just couldn't handle it, so he gave it over to his brother. He didn't want anything to do with finances or any of that part of the castle. In preparation for a career in service to the church, he learned Latin in Milan. He attended the University of Pavia. Charles had a speech impediment, which, coupled with a slowness in grasping the subject material he was given, gave the impression that he was backward. But he was like the tortoise in the account of the tortoise and the hare. He was slow but solid. Everything he learned he would use to defend the church of the 16th century. Charles, a model student, fought the label of being slow by excelling in his studies. He showed great strength, imposing the most stringent demands upon himself. Because of his prudent behavior and demeanor, he was held up to other students as an example of chastity, which was badly lacking in the university. He obtained his doctorate in civil and canon law at 22 years old. His uncle, a Medici Cardinal Archbishop, upon being elected Pope, made Charles a cardinal deacon before making him a priest, as well as administrator of the Archdiocese of Milan, which had been without an archbishop for some time. Charles was ready to assume his role in the Archdiocese of Milan. However, his uncle the Pope had other ideas. He brought him down to Rome to work in the Vatican. In Charles, the Pope knew he had someone he could trust, someone who had the reputation of getting the job done. Charles was made legate of Bologna, Romagna, and the Marquis of Ancona. Then he was named protector of Portugal, the Low Countries, the Catholic can cantons of Switzerland, as well as the orders of the Franciscans, the Carmelites, the Knights of Malta, and many others. Charles was becoming a very powerful man in the church, and he was still not a priest. He did hold minor, minor orders, however, at age 23. His slow, methodical approach did annoy some people in the Vatican, but there was never cause for concern. The assignments were always executed to the exact degree of excellence of which he was expected to perform. Everything was customary and systematic. He was never harried. Although Charles did not know why he was needed in Rome, the Lord did. 
He had to be in this key position at a crucial time. The Council of Trent had opened in 1545, adjourned in 1547, and then convened again 1551, only to be adjourned after one year. The work never completed, it was never brought to conclusion, and none of the reform's doctrines had been instituted. Until and unless all the reform's dogmas, doctrines, and declarations were formalized, the whole Martin Luther controversy would still be up in the air. Until the questions raised by him and his fellow heretics were answered definitively, their errors clearly condemned, dissidents would use this to lure the innocent away from Mother Church. It was unquestionably one of the most important councils the Church had ever convened. To understand the Pope's problems, in 1552, Pope Julius III and his people were victims of strong pressure by the German princes. Protestants had been invited to the council in the spirit of reconciliation, but their demands were so ridiculous it was impossible to concede to them. They insisted that resolutions that had already been made by the council, especially those regarding the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist and the doctrine of transubstantiation, should be revised so as to be based solely on the Protestant interpretation of Scripture, and that the Pope had to, be, to agree to be subordinate to the council. In addition, war broke out between France and Germany. The bishops left the council and never returned. The council had arrived at only fragmentary results, dogmas left incomplete. Only a fraction of the controversies with the Protestants had been doctrinally resolved. Still less satisfactory were the reform decrees, leaving unanswered urgent petitions by the bishop. In 1553, Julius III had prepared an extensive reform bull to cope with the many unresolved practical problems, but he died before it could be published. When Pope Pius IV, Charles' uncle, was elected pope, he vowed he would reopen the council and bring it to conclusion. He had good reason for this. Calvinism was running rampant, not only in Switzerland, where Calvin had begun, but now it was threatening France. Pope Pius IV knew he needed a general council to get the church at, at large to support the Council of Trent's stand on Protestantism. He also knew the amount of the infighting that would be involved in putting together a council, whether it be to continue the Council of Trent or convene a new council. He needed a Charles Borromeo to make it happen. Ten years after the previous council had been adjourned, the final sessions opened. Charles Borromeo was placed in charge of overseeing the council. It almost fell apart on a daily basis, but together with the other members of the council, he wrote the dogmas and decrees needed to complete the council's mission. It has been attested to that Charles Borromeo was the single most important factor behind the successful implementation of the goals of the Council of Trent in 1562. The following year, he was ordained a priest and within a matter of months, bishop. The council concluded he prayed he would now be able to go to Milan and run his archdiocese. Bishops living at the papal court in Rome had become a touchy subject the last two years of the Council of Trent. To breach this subject would appear to be going against the Pope's wishes. Pope Pius IV's thinking was also that of the Popes before him, that travel between Rome and his diocese was long and dangerous. 
we have to believe that St. Charles Borromeo enjoyed such an intricate, being such an intricate part of the workings of the church, especially being such a holy young man. But he did have one problem which constantly nagged at him. He had been made administrator of Milan. They had not had an archbishop living in the archdiocese for 80 years, and yet he could not go to Milan to dispatch his many duties. I mean, he was in effect archbishop of the archdiocese, which is a full-time job, but he couldn't be in the archdiocese to do it. He was a trusted member of the papal team. That word trusted is key here. If someone is a trusted employee or a trusted member of a church community or government, that person is very special. That trust requires an action. In the case of St. Charles Borromeo and the Pope, that action was complete loyalty to the Pope and whatever he needed Charles to do for him. But he was torn between his obedience to the Pope and his obligation to the souls of Milan, which he judged he was not handling as well as could have been handled by someone there full time. However, the Pope needed the bishops to be there with him by his side, mostly for loyalty, but also for quick decisions. He had to know they were not plotting against him, running their own little kingdom in their diocese. Even today, the bishop or archbishop is usually the richest, most influential man in a town. He owns a great deal of property, has access to much money, and is the spiritual leader of hundreds of thousands of the faithful. What would it take for the evil one to fill a bishop or cardinal's heart with treachery and pride, especially if they were far distance from headquarters? What would it take for the local prince or emperor to pressure them into disloyalty and disobedience to the Pope? And how long would it take before the Vatican was even aware of a betrayal from one of her cardinals or bishops? Pope Pius IV was adamant about St. Charles staying at the papal court in Rome. He did have another reason, however, other than just having him available at moment's notice. The closing of the council was just the beginning of the work involved. This particular council, one of the most important, if the, not the most important, council in the history of the church, had to be followed up with many things. As a supplement to the council, many works were produced to implement the doctrines and dogmas of the council. Some of them were revising an index of forbidden books in 1564, the Roman Catechism for Pastors in 1566, the Reformed Roman Breviary in 1568, and the Reformed Roman Missal in 1570. While Charles was not involved in every aspect of these works, he had a hand in all of them. He was particularly involved in the drawing up of the Catechism and in major liturgical reform. But he still felt a great pull to Milan and pressed his uncle to allow him to go there at least for a visitation. Finally, the Pope gave and allowed him to go just for a visitation. There had been a vicar whom St. Charles had appointed. He and a group of Jesuits were specifically sent to try to bring about reforms in the archdiocese and had been unsuccessful in accomplishing their goal. It needed the archbishop, whom Charles had become, to go and put things in order and spend some time with his flock. However, before he left, the, point, the Pope appointed him legate alla terra for all of Italy. In effect, St. Charles was the Pope in whatever area he would visit during the time he was away from Rome. He had brought powers from the Pope. Again, Pope Pius IV knew to whom he was delegating these powers. St. Charles was his right-hand man. St. Charles' time in Milan was well spent, both for him and the church. 
He was able to see firsthand the resolutions of the Council of Trent at work. He taught bishops from other dioceses who were sent to Milan to learn from his teachings of the reforms of the Council of Trent. They were instructed in ways to implement decrees, such as the discipline and training of the clergy, the celebration of divine services, the administration of the sacraments, the teaching of the catechism on Sunday. St. Charles was extremely successful in this provincial council and was sent a letter of congratulations by the Pope. It was during this trip, while working his way back to Rome by way of Tuscany, that he received word that His Holiness Pope Pius IV was dying. He rushed back to Rome to be at the bedside of his uncle and friend, his mentor and sweet Christ on earth. He stayed with the Pope until he died, and his successor, Pope St. Pius V, was elected. Now, there was no question but that the new Pope had need of the broad experience of St. Charles Borromeo in putting together his papacy. He persuaded Charles to stay in Rome for a while. But Charles really wanted to return to Milan and his flock. He felt he was just beginning to make inroads with the people of Milan, as well as the priests and bishops of the surrounding areas. He asked the Pope to let him return to his Archdiocese of Milan. He explained how important it was, not only to him, but to the people of the Archdiocese, as well as the priests and bishops with whom he had worked. The Holy Spirit worked through St. Charles and whispered into the ears of Pope St. Pius V. He could understand the importance of this move for St. Charles as well as for the entire church, and so he dismissed St. Charles with his blessings. In April of 1566, just a few months after Pope St. Pius V was installed Supreme Pontiff, Charles was allowed to return to Milan. This was an important time for him. He had known for a long time how necessary it was for his people to have a full-time bishop. Now he was able to begin working full-time for his archdiocese. And he did. When he became archbishop, he gave away all his goods. He gave away everything to the poor, the indigent, those who had nothing for themselves. He chose to live an austere life. The first severe task Charles inflicted on himself was the tightening up of his household. He also had a lot of money. It came from many different sources, but it always came. He didn't need it. He didn't want to accumulate it. And so he gave away what he didn't need. He made sure, though, that whatever responsibilities he had were taken care of properly, because that's what he was, a proper person. But he never cared for excess. He was happy to be able to share what he had with those who did not. He didn't need the possessions, and he knew some people who did need them, so he put his wealth where he thought it would do the most good. When Charles was allowed to return to Milan for good, he found a raggedy archdiocese steeped in abuses and excesses, but more than anything, a flock without a shepherd. He was a powerhouse of energy. Perhaps the Lord permitted him to stay in Rome for as long as he did as a training ground for this major undertaking, that of whipping an archdiocese into shape and making it a model diocese which would not only benefit the people of Milan and their surrounding areas, but the entire church. The people loved him. He was so filled with the Holy Spirit as he spoke to his spiritual children, they could not but be filled with love for him. They actually looked forward to persevering in virtue and suffering for the sake of the kingdom because he made it such a loving way to live. He instituted so many reforms, it doesn't seem possible that one man could have done all of this. We must keep in mind, in 1566, he was only 28 years old. It was pure Holy Spirit. 
He was responsible for the institution of some of the following. Reorganization of diocesan administration into a workable set of offices. He called six different provincial councils and 11 diocesan councils. He began methodical and frequent visits to every part of his diocese. He opened up seminaries in the archdiocese, first to the Jesuits and then to the followers of St. Ambrose, CCD confraternities of Christian doctrine. St. Charles actually created CCD in its original form. The institution of the diocesan religious society originally called the Oblates of Milan, which was subsequently called the Oblates of St. Charles. He opened schools and cultural and social institutions. He provided shelters for street people of his day called wanderers, the neglected, reformed women and orphanages. Today we call them the marginalized and the disenfranchised. Batted women and abused children. The names change but the, with the technology, but the situation remains the same. Now, St. Charles Borromeo was very concerned with social justice. If you just look at some of the reforms he was responsible for, you know his heart was with the people. He sold and gave away most of his possessions, or at least those that were his to give. He opened shelters for the poor. He opened and financed schools. St. Charles Borromeo was able to accomplish all of this without compromising the faith. This is an important point that we have to make here. In addition, he was a mover and shaker of the Council of Trent. Sweep, sweeping reforms were made. The Council of Trent has been credited down through the ages with being the single greatest factor in defining and defending the doctrines of our faith. But what did the Council of Trent affirm and defend? The Eucharist, the Mass, the primacy of Peter and our popes, the priesthood, the sacraments, everything that we as a church profess today was solidified in the Council of Trent. And St. Charles Borromeo was a leading orchestrator of those reforms. He did not water down our beliefs. He didn't play down the faith for the acceptance of a few or of many for that matter. He didn't decrease the values which he had been given down through the ages. He was catering to the same problems in our society which are prevalent in our church and in our world today, and yet he held fast to the teachings of the magisterium of the church. St. Charles did not feel the need to be popular or liked. You can't put through the kind of sweeping reforms in the church and the state and have everyone like you. He found himself at odds with the Spanish governors of Milan over matters of jurisdictional or secular matters. It came to, to some hard-headed confrontations. In one instance, it was only through the diplomatic resources of the Pope and Prince Philip II of Spain that a sort of peace and arbitration was ex executed. He was actually barred from entering the church by the canons of the church. When St. Charles would persist in his right to make an Episcopal visit to a church, soldiers from one of the Spanish dukes shot at him with a musket. Thank God for the poor aim of the soldier or the lack of accuracy of the firearms or the intervention of the angels, but St. Charles was not hit. However, the crucifix he was holding was nicked. Another time, St. Charles was in his home praying with the members of his household when a paid assassin shot at him at such a point-blank range, it could only have been the wings of the angels which caused the bullet only to graze him slightly. His reputation grew outside the Diocese of Milan as well. He began making apostolic trips to other dioceses such as Brescia, Cremona, and Bergamo, all to the east of Milan. 
He made missionary trips into the Italian and German Alps to those who had been victimized by the widespread lies of Protestantism. In his travels to Switzerland, although John Calvin had died prior to this time, his heresies were firmly entrenched there. St. Charles took his life in his hands to evangelize there, but he did. He burned out at an early age, 46 years old. He was on retreat when he came down with a fever at the end of October 1584. He was brought back to Milan on a litter. Within three days, he was dead. We believe that he had done all that the Lord had wanted him to accomplish in a very short period of time. 26 years after his death in 1610, he was canonized by Pope Paul V. There are many miracles attributed to the intercession of St. Charles Borromeo. There are so many, in fact, that there is no way that they could chronicle them in all their paintings, but they did. They chose 24 of his miracles to show in his church, the Cathedral in Milan, for eight days prior to and on his feast day on November the 4th each year. On that octave, they show 24 paintings of his miracles and 20 paintings of his life, all up and down the aisles of the cathedral in Milan. It's a beautiful thing. We would like to share with you just a few of those miracles. One of them has to do with a five-year-old child who suffered greatly from a large open sore on his left side, which would not heal, endangering his life. On April 18, 1602, at 1 o'clock in the morning, his mother was kneeling in front of a painting of St. Charles, pleading for the cure of the boy who was asleep. After three hours, the child woke up, called to his mother, and told her he was completely cured, as St. Charles appeared to him and touched him with his hand where he had the sore. In another instance, it's told that in July 1603, a mason who had a great devotion to St. Charles was building a house for a man in an area outside of the city. It was very hot. At noon, he rested inside the church of St. James. St. Charles appeared to him and said, Brother, get out of here because the church is going to fall down. The man rushed out of the church, warning bystanders of the danger, but none of them believed it. However, at that instance, the church crashed to the ground in front of their very eyes. St. Charles Borromeo was a majestic role model, a very special role model, a role model for bishops and cardinals. Everybody needs role models, but especially those in authority who have been entrusted by God to shepherd his children. They're answerable because to the degree that we've been blessed, to that degree we are accountable. Possibly more than anyone, bishops and cardinals need our prayers. Pray to St. Charles Borromeo for his intercession for your bishop or cardinal. He was first and foremost a prelate and a defender of the church. Now as a saint in heaven, he prays for his fellow bishops who are called to take up his torch and defend the church. St. Charles didn't give an in to the pressures of the day. He fought the heresy that Jesus, as he was presented by the church, was obsolete in their age. He didn't bring the church and its traditions down to the perceived levels of the people. He showed the people how they could rise to the levels of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for Charles Barmeo, especially in this day and time when all around us seems so helpless. When there seems to be no help, you give us help through your servant, St. Charles, as well as all the saints. St. Charles Barmeo, pray for us and for your fellow bishops and cardinals. We love you. God bless you. Please load our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Here's how to download our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Simply 
with your iPhone or Android device, go to the App Store, search for Bob and Penny Lord app, and download it. It's that simple. Here's what you can do with our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Number one, the, there's a link to our marketplaces, our websites, uh, our uh, blog, and this podcast. The second link is to our Bob and Penny Lord TV channel, where you can access all of our videos as seen on EWTN, plus a whole lot more. Thank you very much.